Appreciate everybody being here this morning. And uh, one of the things I did forget at the announcement time is our Operation Christmas Child. So I did some quick counting. I think there's 39 right there. That would break last year's, I believe, by one. So that's great. Way too few, though. So I know there's probably somewhere around 80 or more boxes that were taken. So chop, chop. Let's get those in. Make a note to myself. Harold, make sure you get yours in because I know. <clears throat> no, I think Kim brought. I think Kim brought ours in. So, anyways, we'll go ahead and turn to First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter five. It's page eleven eighty-three. If you're using the Bible there in the chair, and uh, we're going to continue working through finishing up First Thessalonians. Next week we could go into Second Thessalonians. We're taking both of these books. They're small. They uh, relate to the same issue of. Um, this incredible promise from Jesus Christ that he's coming back and how it is that we're supposed to live in light of that. Um, it was a promise that Jesus made. It was a promise that the angels uh, made to the disciples as Jesus was returning to heaven after his resurrection. Paul talks about it. Peter talks about it. And so we are expecting that to happen. In the first century, they thought it was going to happen in their day. And so there was some interesting things that Paul had to work through, and, and so he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians to help work through some of those uh, situations and circumstances as people thought, okay, Jesus is coming back in our day. Um, and so last week we learned out of chapter 4 that Paul was just kind of calming their fears because they thought that this uh, Christ's return had already happened and that they had somehow missed it. Now, a side note, 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter deals with this issue of why is it that Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet? Because as they were going through the first century and talking about Jesus coming back, people who were not believers, people who were trying to make Christians look bad and kind of laughing at him, mocking at him, saying, well, Jesus is not back yet, Jesus is not back yet. And so Peter makes the point that the reason he's not back is he's not going to come back until everybody who's supposed to accept Christ has accepted Christ. And so it's in our future as well, but it could be today um, and where our world is going as it, you know, you read through Revelation and you see what's going on in our world today. Um, it's, we're certainly closer to it than the first century. So last week, uh, Paul described Jesus' return. Um, and, and so those who, who have placed their faith in Christ during this period we call the church age, time between his um, ascension back to heaven and eventual uh, rapture that we're going to before the tribulation. This is what we call the church age. So all those people since the first century until whatever is in our future, all those people who have placed their faith in Christ, whether they live or they die, Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to rapture them is the, is the phrase that we use. It means to be caught up in the air. It's a, a Latin term that uh, theologians use and uh, raptio and so we just turned into rapture in our language. But it has this idea of snatching up or, or taking up. And it's significant to these believers in, in the first century uh, because they were going through persecution. They had placed their faith in Christ. The community around them, the authorities around them, both the Jewish authorities and Roman authorities were persecuting them. And so they were thinking, oh, we must be in the tribulation. And so Paul says, no. The rapture is going to happen first, then the tribulation. You guys are still here. That means the rapture hasn't happened. And so therefore you're not in the tribulation period, this time of, of judgment that Jesus Christ is going to bring upon the earth. 
And so he's, he's clarifying that for them. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul calls this day of judgment, this tribulation period, the day of the Lord. And again, we, can, we think of, we hear the word tribulation, it's kind of more familiar with us. But Paul uses the phrase, day of the Lord. And so he quickly mentions it here at the first um, three verses or so. And then he spends the rest of the time saying, okay, because of the day of the Lord that's coming, how should we live today? And so he keeps coming back to God's got the future figured out. God's doing some things in the future. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. But if we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that we're going to spend eternity with him one day, then we should easily believe that he's going to do what he's saying he's going to do um, the rest and the rest of that. And so he spends the rest of the time saying, okay, so with the fact that God's got the future figured out, what do we who claim to be followers of Christ, Christians, what are we supposed to do? And so there's a lot in this chapter, and I'm going to, I, I, you know, I don't want to go three hours um, today. Um, so I, I'm going to answer four questions, and then Paul's going to, um, well, I'm, I'm going to ask four questions. Paul's going to answer those questions for us. And, and here's, here's the four questions that we're going to ask of Paul, of, of God, uh, and God's using Paul to answer him. When is the day of the Lord? When's that going to happen? How should it impact my life? In other words, and when I'm saying that, I'm saying, how should, it, how should my overall view of life be? Okay. And then, what should I do while I wait for Jesus? So that's kind of the every day. And then, can I be successful at it? Because as we go through this, we're going to see, wow, there are some things that God is asking of us that, man, can we even be successful at doing life God's way. And so we want to see what God has to say about this first question. When is the day of the Lord? So here it is. It says, now as to the times and epochs. Now, feel free to use that word um, with your friends and family. You don't kind of impress them. Hey, how's your epoch going? Um, Anyways, it wasn't funny. I said, I thought it, and I'm like, it might work. And then I said it, and I was like, no, it should never, you know, Clark, I'm with you. So now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. In other words, I, I've already given you all this information. Now, we're not privy to the information. It's just what he taught them when he was there for, some believe, only a month. But if you want to know more of what he taught, 1 Corinthians talks about it, 2 Corinthians talks about it, Peter talks about it, and so... We don't need to, he's saying, I don't need to write anything more about it to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will be just a thief in the night. While they are saying peace, safety, then destruction will come upon them. These are the, the, the non-believers, those who haven't placed their faith in Christ. Because the, those who have, have been taken to heaven with Christ. So those who are remaining would be those who um, have not done that. But come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. Spiritually alive, understand spiritual things. That's what that means. Oh, so that was the end of that. Sorry. I was waiting for the next slide. So, why do we believe that it's... Um, that it's the tribulation period, the seven-year period of time. Well, the first reason is because he uses the word times and epochs. Those two Greek words mean a period of time. They don't mean a single day or a single event. 
they mean a period of time. And so then when we look at it and say, okay, well, then the day of the Lord must be a period of time. Now, some, you remember the chart from last week, I just kind of darkened some of those. We're kind of focusing in on the ones that are a little lighter. Some believe that the day of the Lord is a point-in-time event. So at the end of the seven-year period, Christ returns to earth. He actually puts his feet on earth. He sets up a, a thousand-year reign. It'll be uh, reigning in Israel, according to Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And uh, so he'll come back physically. The rapture is not a physical back to the earth. It's we're going to join him in the air, as it says. Again, you know, blow your mind type of stuff, but... Um, We believe it's going to happen, but he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to wipe out everybody and set up his kingdom. And so people say, well, that's the day of the Lord, that event. But again, because of the way this is set up and the the words and some of the other things we're going to look at, we believe it's a seven-year tribulation period. So it's a, a period of time, one, because of the words he uses. And secondly, he says it's going to come as a thief in the night. It's going to become, it's going to come suddenly. It's going to become, it's going to come unexpectedly for those who are left on this earth. Well, if you, so if you think about it this way, so this is kind of a logical, logical argument. The, according to Revelation, the tribulation period is time of just incredible chaos, right? Um, the, the Christians are gone and the world's in chaos and then um, Jesus Christ recom- returns, the people who believe that he comes at the end of the tribulation. Oh, the day of the Lord is the end of the tribulation. Well, if you're a person on earth and you know anything about the Bible, you know that when the rapture happens, that there's going to be seven years before he comes back. Well, that's not a thief in the night, right? You know. Oh, this happened, so about seven years from now, the day of the Lord is going to happen. So it can't be that. It's got to come as a thief in the night. So happening at the beginning or happening through the seven-year period of time. And then the other thing, it says, people will be saying peace and safety. Well, there again, when the, when the Christians are raptured, when they're taken to be with the Lord, there's going to be chaos happening. There's going to be airplanes crashing. And there's going to be, you know, uh, cars crashing. There's going to be people who are going to be gone. It's, it's going to be chaos. Around the world, this is going to happen. Large numbers of people are going to be gone. The world is going, to, is going to be like, this is crazy. What happened? And so we also know that the way the world is going, Christians are the ones who are singled out. They're the ones who are being blamed for a lot of the order and, and what we, you know, we, we stand for uh, against abortion and we we stand for marriage, a man and a woman. You know, we're doing all these things that the world wants to say, hey, we don't want any of that over us. So when the Christians are gone, they're going to be excited. And then the, Daniel 9, the Old Testament, tells us that the Antichrist, the one who's going to bring the entire world together and, and supposedly bring peace, he's going to write a peace treaty with Israel. And which is interesting because everything's always focused on Israel in our world. The Bible, of course, is focused on Israel. And so... It can't be the second coming because they're saying peace and safety. So it has to be at the beginning of the tribulation, not at the end, because at the end of the tribulation, if you know anything about Revelation, the world's a mess. There is destruction all over the place. Large numbers of people have been killed. The the earth, as as we know it, has been uh, destroyed um, pretty much. And so the idea there, they're they're saying peace and safety because this Antichrist guy is going to be in place. 
And so again, we believe it's the tribulation period of time and not the coming of Christ. That's, a, that's the second coming is what we call it. So Paul clarifies that for them and for us. Hopefully that was clear for you guys. Um, but he says, listen, the, the, the purpose of you knowing this information is not so you have this information so much that you kind of focus on it. That's what he's been dealing with in this, in this letter. But so that you then will be and do what God's called you to be and do. That you have a mission, Christians. You, you are to be doing some things. You're to be representing Christ. And so now he's going to kind of work through that in these next verses. And so we, the question comes, so how, do, how does this impact our lives? And again, I'm looking at it from a standpoint of kind of the big picture. How, how should I enter into, into life? And so this is what he says to answer that question. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. I mean, they're not even going to be here. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. This being spiritually alive and you understand spiritual things. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep. And we're gonna, we'll talk a little bit about that word as others do. But let us be alert and sober. For those who, those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, again spiritually alive, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. So what's our, what's our perspective on life? What, how should it impact the way we look at life? He said the first thing is you need to be alert. Christians, you need to be alert. Why? Because Christ could come back any day. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. It could be a year from now, but it could happen any day. We don't know when Jesus Christ will return. Jesus even said, you, you don't know. So people who say they know, they don't know because the Bible says you won't know. Problem is, a lot of us as Christians, we don't live with that expect, ex, uh, expectancy, right? We don't come to church on Sunday morning and go, oh, it could happen right during our service. How cool would that be? You know, we don't wake up Monday morning and go, man, it could happen today. I better, I better be and do what God wants me to be and do. We, we don't, we, we're thinking about our bills. You know, we're thinking about our health. We're thinking about what it is we want to do for vacation. We're thinking about what we want to do when we retire. We're, you know, we're thinking about everything else but the fact that Jesus Christ could return any day. And we have people in our lives who don't know Christ, who if Jesus Christ were to come back, that means that's going to get the day of the Lord going, the tribulation going, and they're going to be sitting there experiencing the wrath of God. And when they die, they'll experience the eternal wrath of God. And we have the answer for that. And so we need to be living with expectancy, with, with urgency, with, man, I've got to, yeah, I've got to go to work, I've got to pay the bills, but in doing that, I've got to represent Christ. I've got to bring this message to people. And then he says twice, he says to be sober, I love this word. It's my favorite, probably one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. It means to be free from mental or spiritual drunkenness. So he's not talking, when he's talking about it, he's not talking about actually drinking and getting yourself drunk. He's talking about a spiritual and emotional sense about us. That as Christians, we should be sober. We shouldn't be knocked around by our emotions. He says we're to be self-controlled. Now that self-control is really Christ-controlled, but I'm using the word confident because I think we all kind of get that. 
That we're to be, we're be expectant, and then we're supposed to be confident. So we don't need to have fear control us. We don't need to have anger control us. We don't need to have our depression control us. We don't need to have anxiety control us. We don't need to be frantic about life and what's going on in life. And will the bills be paid? What will the future be? How will my kids be? You know, it's just, we don't have to be freaking out about that. We're to be sober. We're to be confident. Why? One, because we're children of light and day. Now again, we don't use that phrase a whole lot. But we're to be children of, of light and day. It means that the fact that we are spiritually alive. That when we place our faith in Christ, God forgives us of our sins. Then God washes out those sins and He places in us God the Holy Spirit who gives us spiritual life. And in that spiritual life, we don't become God, but in that spiritual life that we have because of the Holy Spirit who dwells us, then when we read Scripture, He teaches us. And so then we can learn more. That's the whole spiritual understanding. And we're to be in God's Word. We're to be studying God's Word, reading God's Word, memorizing God's Word, meditating on God's Word. That's Everybody in the Bible did that. And we're supposed to be doing it still today. He says we're not, to, we're not to be sleeping. And that, when he uses this word, it's the same word each time. It's different than verse, or chapter 4. Chapter 4 was a, a different word for sleep, and it meant uh, basically being dead physically, but alive, and you're going to become alive one day, so it's actually like you're sleeping. This word, which gets a little frustrating with Paul, it's the same word every time, but where it's at in the verse, it, it's, it means something a little different. So in this, in this particular verse, a person who is asleep, in this context, it's someone who is spiritually indifferent. Someone who's apathetic. Who's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, God's cool. Jesus is cool. I, you know, whatever. But yeah, it doesn't really impact my life. Sadly, we have Christians who live that way as well. But this is speaking about people who are not believers. And they're just kind of spiritually apathetic. Christians shouldn't be spiritually apathetic. Because we've got God, the Holy Spirit living in us. We've got God's Word teaching us. He's, the other reason why we should be confident and sober is that we are spiritually equipped. He uses the, the word uh, phrase, breastplate of faith and love. Now the breastplate in the military terms back in the day, it covered up you know, your, your midsection, covered up your heart. And back then, your, your heart was kind of the core of who you were. It was the seat of your emotions. And he's saying, listen, we, we've got protection against our emotions going crazy. So we can be sober. We don't have to be controlled by those things. We've got this breastplate. And it's, it's built with faith and love. Faith in God and love amongst ourselves. So faith in God, we know, because we're reading Scripture, right? And we're understanding what Scripture says, that God is a good God, that, that God is powerful, that his word renews our minds, that his, his word has a transforming effect on us, and that as we take steps of faith and do life God's way, he empowers us to do it, and we see him at work in our lives. And so we have this, it protects us. We don't have to be all freaked out. We don't have to be all nervous. We don't have to be anxious, because why? God's got it. Now we think we know better than God oftentimes, but God's trying to tell us, I've got this. He's got the entire future taken care of. If, he, if he's got our future taken care of, he's going to take us to heaven one of these days, and he's going to destroy this earth and have a new heaven and earth. Believe me, he can take care of whatever our issue is. That's very, very small. 
and tiny compared to what he's promising to do. If we believe he can save us and take us to heaven one day, he can take care of us. So we should have confidence because of who God is. But then that confidence is also because of this uh, fact that we have, because of God's Holy Spirit in us, who unites us as Christians, we have God, the Holy Spirit, working through us to help each other through whatever we're going through. That's what the purpose of the church family. If you're not connected in with, a church, with our church family, if you're, if you're calling Grace Point your church, and you're not connecting in with us, you're not doing what God's called, to, called us to do. And so you need to connect in. You need to build relationships. They need to be able to encourage you, and you, even in your struggle, need to encourage others. You need to take the focus off ourselves, and we need to put it on other people. And in that, there's a confidence that comes. There's uh, um, a defeating of the emotional side of life. But then he also says there's a helmet of the hope of salvation. Now, the hope in, in biblical terms is not, like I talked about last week, it's not, oh, you know, I'm worrying, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get, you know, oh, help me, help me, help me. No, biblical hope is a certain confidence in that whatever God has said he's going to do, he's going to do. Why? Because God's saying he's going to do it. And we can trust God because he's good. He's faithful. He's true. He follows through on his promises. And so when we start thinking we know better than God how we should be doing our lives, the, the helmet of the hope of salvation tells us no, because who God is and because of his truthfulness and his power, what he says about me is what's true, not what I think about me or what other people may think about me. What what God says about why I'm going through the circumstances and doing what I'm going through, what, what he says is true, not what I think of that circumstance or what other people are telling me about that circumstance. Because I have this relationship with God. He helps me know what is true. And then it's up to me to do what needs to be done as teaming up with him in that sense and letting him work in me. And the last thing real quick on this one point is we're not destined for God's wrath. And just really quickly... God's wrath is coming upon the world in a tribulation period, but we're going to be gone. So we're not going to be, we're not going to face God's wrath on this earth, but we're also not going to face his wrath for eternity. We get to spend eternity with him because of what he's done, not because of what we've done, but what he's done. And so we can have this confidence in life. We can look at life and say, whatever's thrown at me, whatever comes down the pike, God's got it. And I can walk in confidence that he's got it, that he's going to do what he wants to do. So we can live confidently. But, and in that confidence, then we can live intentionally. That's what the next thing Paul talks about here. So this is, how should I, uh, what should I do while I wait for Jesus? Now I'm going to try to fly through this. There's a lot in here. But he says, therefore, because Christians are spiritually equipped and free from God's wrath, therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Because again, these guys are doing a great job at this and I think our church does as well. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently, diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. But we urge you, so he's, hey, you know, Appreciate your people that are serving over you, but man, I'm urging you with this one. I'm, you know, kind of cranking up the heat a little bit here. We urge you, brethren, admonish 
the unruly or the disobedient. Encourage the faint-hearted or those that are discouraged. Help the weak, those who are weak in faith. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil or another evil with, for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Right there. Just try those three things. You know, that's God's, God's will. That's what it's... Right? When the Bible says it's God's will, then we know it's God's will. No matter what we might think, or what we might feel, the truth is, this is God's will. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every evil form of evil. And so, we're supposed to live intentionally. It starts with appreciating your spiritual leaders. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because you guys are like Thessalonian believers where you guys do this well. You guys encourage me and the other spiritual leaders in our church, those who are doing ministries, you guys are really good at doing that. You show your appreciation. You show your, your high respect of us. Sometimes I wonder, you know, do I deserve it? Um, but, you know, you guys are good. And then he says, live at peace with one another. Because there's always that potential that as spiritual leaders do what and, and are leading the way God wants them to lead, that other people are going to be frustrated with that and be irritated with that. And so he's reminding them, hey, listen, be at peace with each other. Work for peace between you. Not peace for peace's sake, but peace making sure you're doing life God's way. So it's possible, be at peace with all men. But sometimes it's not because sometimes people are trying to do life God's way and other people are saying that's not the way we want to go. But if possible, live at peace. And then he goes on, and he, the next group of verses that we read is, is serve those who struggle. So one, hey, appreciate who God's put in leadership above you. Uh, esteem them highly. But then, those who are struggling spiritually, you serve them. And this is how he breaks it down for us. Admonish the unruly. Now, admonishing is using Scripture to warn believers who are disobeying. He's talking about everyone in the church, or everyone who's a believer anyways. So he's not saying pastors are the only ones to do this. All of us who have placed our faith in Christ, who are our family of God, are responsible to do this. You, if you've placed your faith in Christ, and me, are to do this for each other. And so somebody who is as we get to talk, not that we're not looking on their Facebook page, we're not looking on their Instagram page, we're not going to their house and looking inside their windows, we're not stalking people, but as we're uh, interacting with pe- people, we're talking with people, and we're finding what's going on in their lives, if there's something going on in their life, it's our responsibility in love, you can go to Galatians 6 if you want more information on this, but in love, sit them down and just, hey, listen, I'm, I'm concerned about you, because I see what's going on in your life, we've been talking about what's going on in your life, but here's what God's Word says about that. And so, let's, you know, how can I help you get back on track? And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. There's people who are discouraged and timid. There are Christians who are discouraged and timid. And so we're, we're supposed to help them, encourage them, cheer them up, be there with them, help the weak. I love that help in the Greek means to have strong interest in helping. It's not just, you know, yeah, I've got to help them. But it's like, no, I've, I've got to figure out 
Why are they weak in their faith? What's going on in their lives? How can I help them and encourage them to be patient with everyone? You know, the bear up when triggered. I just love that word, right? Because, man, people can do stuff that trigger us, right? They can say things that trigger us. They can respond to us that trigger us. And he says, no, no, listen. You, you don't respond in, like, in a like way. Don't, you know, be patient with them. Bear up under that and respond appropriately. And don't respond with evil for evil, but seek good. And so we don't respond the way they're responding to us, but we seek, we pursue after, we look for ways. We actively, intentionally look for ways to do good to those who have hurt us. Whether it's in what they said and what they've done, we're to seek their good. Now, this is a little bit of free advice. <clears throat> I don't charge you for all of my um, Bible teaching. If you're one of these people, uh, go ahead and go back. Thank you. So if you're one of the people who are like discouraged, timid, weak in their faith, can I encourage you with something? This is for all of us to do. If you're weak in your faith, if you're timid, if you're struggling in some way, one of the great ways to get out of that is for you to turn it around and look for people who need to be encouraged, who need to be strengthened in their faith. Why? Because it's going to cause you to get back in God's Word. You're going to be helping them. You're going to find that value of, of helping and being like Christ, the way Christ wants us to be. So yeah, if you're doing good and life's good and you're feeling on top of the world, you know, and God's doing some neat things and you're excited, yeah, do it. But if you're not, do it. Because it's part of that healing and growing process that God wants for our lives. All right, moving on real quick. The next thing is, and so as you're pouring into people, there's an important thing on our part as individuals, and that is we, have a, we need a lifestyle of obedience. Because as I, as I read through these before, and walk, that, that's, that's a lifestyle right there. And so he says, rejoice when? Always. Now, I know we talk about this a lot in church. It's a very churchy thing to say, right? Rejoice always. But there's a reason why God tells us over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture to rejoice always. Because He wants us to rejoice always. That's why He tells us that all the time. So no matter what we're going through, no matter what struggle we're facing, whether we understand it or don't understand it, whether it's good or bad, we rejoice. We're glad in it. Why? Because God is at work in our lives. There's a reason why we're going through it. It's not surprising God. He knows it's happening. We're to be praying without ceasing. Talk to God about your life circumstances all the time. We should just have an attitude of prayer. Not that we close our eyes and walk around like this and, you know, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh, you know, we're not doing that. But we're just this attitude of prayer. That prayer means to talk to God. We're just having conversations with God throughout the day. Difficult times come, good times come, difficult people come, good people come. You know, whatever we're facing, we're just talking to God about it and asking Him, hey, give me the wisdom and discernment to be able to respond and all that. Give thanks in everything. Thank you, Lord, for this health issue I'm dealing with. Thank you for this frustration that I'm feeling. Thank you for this battle that I'm in. Thank you. Just 
thank him for it. Why? Because in that process, he's going to show himself. He's going to help you understand as you're in his word and with your brothers and sisters in Christ, do not quench the spirit. That means to stifle the Holy Spirit through disobedience. It, it means that God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to move in a certain fighting them on it. There's some sin in our lives that we're unwilling to get rid of. We're making excuses for it or rationalizing it, whatever, but we're not dealing with it. And, and that's quenching the Holy Spirit because God's never going to force himself on you. He's a loving God. He doesn't abuse us. He's there. He's willing. He's waiting. But he never forces himself on us. He says, do not despise prophetic utterances. What he's talking about there is as God's word is taught, as, God, as you're reading God's word and God's Holy Spirit's teaching you, to despise it is to have this arrogance about us that goes, yeah, well, you know, I, get, I like all this, but this, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't need that. And it's an arrogant attitude that we have towards God's word. He says, don't do that. Don't despise it. He says, examine everything carefully, which means we need to be in, the, in God's word. We need to be examining what his word says and then examining what's going on in our lives and saying, does it line up with scripture? If it doesn't line up with scripture, what do we do? Well, if it lines up with scripture, we hold fast to what is good, which is the next one. We hang on to it. And if it doesn't line up with scripture, we toss it every sin, every evil, every wrong thought, every wrong attitude, every wrong action. Now, I'm not saying this happens, you know, overnight, you know. We're going to be perfect in heaven, not here on earth. But it's part of the process. It's, it's, as we, it's a lifestyle. So I was talking to somebody after the first service, and, and we were talking about this whole idea of lifestyle. So we all have a lifestyle, right? We all, have, we all are doing life a certain way because of how we were raised, what we saw in our parents, what we saw in our families, we, we all have this lifestyle. And we may, you know, look to the world and say, okay, that's kind of cool. I'd like to bring that into my lifestyle and I see what's going on over here. And I'd like to pull that into my lifestyle. So we, we develop this lifestyle. What needs to happen is we need to toss our lifestyle and become more like Christ and let God develop in us his lifestyle, how he thinks his attitude, his response to life. So I don't know if you guys are like me when it comes to the Bible, but I look at that and I say, wow, that's a lot of hard stuff. That's a lot of hard work. Right? I don't think I can do it. In fact, I know I can't, which is what's so exciting. Can we do this? Well, look how Paul ends this passage. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Who's going to do the work in us? God. Not only does God, God of peace. You want peace? It's God. You have, to, you have to be in an intimate, growing relationship with God to experience the peace that he has, that he himself. And he's going to sanctify you. He's going to set, him, set, your, set you apart for his work. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Yes, when we get to heaven, we're going to be perfectly healed of all things. Right? On earth, we're not going to be perfectly healed because we're not in heaven yet. 
But that process of becoming in that, going in that direction, that's what this earth is all about. And so God is faithful. He's the God of peace who will sanctify us. Now, we just got done talking about what, what we need to be doing in our lives. So when we're doing those things, seeking those things, asking him to help us with those things, he's the one who does the work in us. He's the one, through his word, that changes how we think. Changes our perspective on life. Changes how we respond to people. We're, oh, oh, now I get I see why God was saying I need to do that when that person does that. You know, it's, it's kind of a cool experience when you start realizing, oh, yeah, I was thinking wrong on that. He will preserve, preserve you complete when Jesus comes. Yeah, when Jesus comes. But the process is now as you continue to become more and more complete, become more and more like Christ, he does it in and through you. And he's faithful in calling you. So think about this. We weren't really looking for God. Those of us who place our faith in him, you know, we might have been looking for religion, but, you know, we weren't looking for God and what he gave us. We thought, you know, religion was something I have to do and I have to work through, but then we found out what it really was. And God was faithful in calling us. That, that word means to literally call out your name. And so God was calling your name. Hey, over here. Got something for you. And he was faithful to do that. And if he's faithful to do that so he could save you, save me, he's going to be faithful to grow us. He's going to be faithful to give us what we need to experience what he's told us to experience, the confidence that we can have in life and the intentionality, to be able to be intentional in our lives. Well, next week we're going to move into 2 Thessalonians and Paul continues to give us some details about the end times, but then say, okay, because of that, how are we supposed to live? And so we're going to continue doing that. We're also going to have communion um, next week, and so we want you to come back for that as we celebrate Christ's sacrifice for us. But before we go, let me just give you some takeaways, and then I'm just going to close in prayer. But as you think about these things this week, and as you, as you wrestle with this passage, let me just ask you some questions. One is, what are you struggling, uh, where are you struggling to live confidently and intentionally? Where's that battle at? Because we, we all have battles, right? And where in your life are you quenching the Holy Spirit or disobeying Him? Where are you despising what He's telling you because you think you know better than He does? Because you've got you to gotta wrestle with that. You've you got to come to terms with it. Okay? So commit then to turn from those things. Demonstrate a lifestyle of obedience. Serve those who are struggling. And then experience the confidence in life that God desires for you. Because in that confidence, as you live that out, people are going to go, wow, how do you handle what you handle? And you say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And now you have the opportunity to share with them who he is, what he's done for them. And then they, Lord willing, would come to Christ faith in Christ, and then you can walk with them as they understand that more and more, and you're helping with that, and praying with them, and reading the Bible together, and bringing them to church, and now you've got one more person who's going to be beside you when Christ does return. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. I, I know I say this all the time, and for the clarity of your word. Forgive us, Lord, because, um, man, we're, we're so um, good at deceiving ourselves, and thinking that we know better or that some other person knows better, some person with some big degree or some person that sounds really good and has a 
neat accent or a neat way of putting things. But Lord, only in you and in a relationship with you is there this confidence that we can have in life and then to be able to live intentionally, not for ourselves, not for our comfort, but for you and impacting, <clears throat> excuse me, impacting people for Christ and helping them know who you are. The greatest thing we can have in our life is a relationship with you and to know you and through our difficult times even to find out more about who you are, to find that joy that's, that you offer us. Lord, help us to be faithful to do these things, to allow you to work in us, to be obedient in all aspects of our lives and then use us to see people come to Christ. Praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thanks for being with us. Great to have you. It's still snowing, but it's not sticking, so that's good. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.